Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome to my favourite time of the week. And as part of the Inspiring Leadership series, I'm very fortunate to have General Jonathan Shaw with me. And uh, he has had a very successful military career, doing a whole variety of, of really challenging and interesting roles in the military. And was recommended to me by other leaders that I've worked with and served with. Um, and they said, this is a man you need to get on the series. Um, he then once he left the military in 2012, um, became chairman of Counter ID, and he's doing a number of public speaking and journalist events. A very interesting man, also written a book, uh, which is very interesting about Whitehall. General, great to have you on this series, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Well, it's, it's really great having you on board. And perhaps would you sh share with us a little bit about some of the roles that you had while you were in the military, uh, and which were the ones that were quite interesting? For you and then perhaps talk to us about how you made the transition uh, into into business uh, yeah the um, yeah that transition one's a tricky one but let's come back to that in a minute uh, my time in the military uh, I joined the army pretty much by accident having uh, left Oxford and gone to the city and finding that so disillusioning and dehumanizing that uh, I just wanted some fresh air well and I was then steered by a, a rural engineer in the recruitment office to the parachute regiment uh, and got a dose of fresh air with the Falklands campaign a year later. So that was a bit of a shock. Um, and that campaign uh, convinced me that if something was worth dying for, it's probably worth living for. And mm -hmm. so I changed from a short service career to a regular commission uh, and stayed in for 32 years, having only joined for three. Um, and I guess there's loads of people who've done something vaguely similar and you know, it's been a great career and they saw me at three power to start with in the Falklands. Straight after that, I came back and a year later, went to Hereford for a few years um, and then bounced between. By the time I went to RCDS in 2006, I'd done a third of my time in, at regiment, a parachute regiment, a third at, uh, at SF and a third in staff jobs. So it was a really fascinating time. My staff jobs have been... Um, Although I started in army plans, my staff jobs were Colonel MO2, which is absolutely fascinating about Whitehall doing uh, the fuel protest, foot and mouth, and then 9-11. Mm. Um, and then DSF uh, as well. So I had a bit of a, yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a great time. Mm. Um, and then after that went off and did, uh, did Basra. Um, and then finished my final couple of years, four years in the, in the MOD. Um, Leaving the army I, is actually very challenging, very difficult. Um, all those structures and security that you took for granted in the military suddenly aren't there and you suddenly have to develop a new sense of worth and a sense of value in what you have to offer. And that's a, a really big humility pill actually, working out that uh, you know I used to have an outer office of, of, of about three people uh, and then suddenly you're on your own making your own coffin. It's a hell of a shock. Yeah. Um, and it's 
tricky to work out where you actually can add value. Uh, I began with a portfolio career doing a number of working for a number of companies, and the end that thinned down to just you narrow down to the ones that you feel comfortable in and where you think you're really making a, a valid difference. And that's why I'm chairman now of Optima, the uh, leading practitioners of counter ID and rule of law and other skills, uh, and dropped the others where I really didn't feel a sense of cultural fit. Mm. Mm. Um, and also doing public speaking and uh, and some journalism, both of which I really enjoy. Uh, so it's been an itch. It's uh, you know, had a great career, and I'm uh, really enjoying actually being outside now. But don't underestimate the challenges because it is it is quite a different uh, different game. Yeah, and, and during your time when you were uh, both in the army and since, uh, who would be a couple of leaders, uh, and perhaps you might choose different ones for different reasons, that you would describe as inspiring and what qualities did they have? I mean, it could have been people as you growing yeah. up, people at Oxford, people before then, uh, parents or something. What, what were the people who you'd look to as inspiring and what did you learn from them and the qualities they had? Yeah, the, 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 I picked out three, um, all from the military side, fair enough. I mean, the big influence right early on was, was Hugh Pike, obviously my CEO in the Falklands. Um, and what really gripped me about him was the way he, his mental strength galvanised the battalion. I mean, there we were used to peacetime soldiering or used to the rules of Northern Ireland. They'd only been in the battalion a year. Uh, but the battalion was you know, used to Northern Ireland and the, the rules of war in, in Northern Ireland and peacetime soldiering. Uh, and then suddenly you had to do this complete psychological change of being at war. And he, his strength and his vision, uh, I remember one time you know, when we were walking across the island and uh, some heavily overlaid signalers and gunners uh, rolled their ankles in the rock screes. And I thought, well, in normal peacetime, you know, you'd st- everything would stop now and we'd wait for Kazivak to come in. And Hugh Pike just said, march on, leave them. Wow. wow. And... Um, you could just feel this frisson run through the battalion um, as you realise that this really was march or die, that this was a different game. Mm. Um, and that single moment of, of uh, leadership just, just changed the mentality. It was extraordinary. The mindset changed. Mm. Um, Rupert Smith was, I think, if there was anyone in my time, uh, Rupert Smith was the, is, yeah. is the greatest leader of my time. Um, I had him, he was a CEO of mine. Uh, I saw him, worked under him in Northern Ireland and of course in the Balkans. I wasn't with him in Iraq, but obviously that's his moment of, of greatest glory. What I think was brilliant about him was the way he gave his vision and his understanding of the problem, really gave coherence to the challenge that all the bits of the organization faced. And because of that, really empowered initiative because he, he opened up the topic to make you really understand what the hell was going on and what your part in it was and therefore allowed you to do your job in a way that fitted the overall picture. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and he inspired me then to write, uh, you know, in all my commands as, as CEO, as DSF and in Iraq, the sort of big intent paper. Uh, when I took over command, the first thing I did was sort of lock myself away and think, what is the problem here? What is the understanding? What are we trying to achieve? What's the culture you want to try and encourage? And write those papers that you hope are going to last for your time in command and, and give a guiding light to all the people working for you. So I was trying to do for them what Rupert Smith had always done for, for me and every command he'd had. Oh, it was brilliant. 
And just picking up on that, um, having uh, met both Hugh Pike um, on a number of occasions, like when I was a brigade chief of staff, there was a brigade commander called Austin Thorpe, and uh, it was just in the northeast of England, it's 15 Brigade, and Hugh came to visit. And it was very interesting watching, you know, what drove him and what motivated him. But Rupert Smith stands out uh, head and shoulders, I think, above many. And when I worked for Field Marshal Lynch, there was a thing called the Ginger Group, which I think Richard Dannett was part of, and, and also Ginge Bagnall was one, but Rupert Smith was in it. And they were the sort of the thinkers, the, the people who were going to change the way the army did business in a time when it was very stuck in a east-west Cold War uh, in a German border kind of scenario and how to play the game differently. And Rupert Smith was his commander's intent and things like that changed the game completely. People have never forgotten him who've worked for him. And you've been very lucky to have those two as role models, just yeah. for the thoughts, really. Yeah, I know, he's brilliant. Um, I mean, I think it's very interesting what you say. We'll come on to it perhaps later. But I think the interesting thing about it is that having had been in that ginger group, after that, you know, clearly at that time, when you saw him there, he was seen as an opportunity and as, an, as something the army ought to embrace. Well, later on, as he got more senior, he started to be seen as a threat. Mm. And it's interesting that he was never actually allowed onto the army board officially. He had sort of visiting rights as GOC Northern Ireland or as DSACIR, but he was never on the army board because he disagreed with people like Guthrie and mm. people in charge. And he was seen as a threat. Yeah. And I think that's something that, well, we'll come back to when we talk about my views on Iraq and Afghanistan later on. Uh, and I think it is an open question whether the army is free enough in its thinking about um, divergent points of view, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, my third person that I thought was inspiring was David Hopley, who uh, was my CO down at, when I went to the SBS. Now he's a Royal Marine and great guy. And what I took from him was the importance of people, how people are absolutely key. That's, his, that's David Hopley's great strength. Yeah, there's a great line from Henry Kissinger which says people can only be led by ideas so far and after that they need something more elemental. And, uh, and hopefully sort of understood that and got that absolutely. And I'd say that in the context that, uh, you know, I was the first uh, non-Royal Marine. Sorry, just the doors opening. Ah, you can edit that later. Uh, I was the first. I was the first uh, army officer to command a uh, an SBS squadron since 1942. Yeah, <laughs> when another para, curious enough, had been in charge of it. Um, and that might not sound too remarkable, except for the fact that uh, David Honky Heber had gone up from Poole to command a squadron at Hereford and had been sacked uh, in the field in Gulf War One by Johnny Holmes. In fact, yeah. he bore ignominiously by his RSM. Um, which really rankled. And so you could tell there was all the opportunity for the Royal Marines to, to really ditch me in it when I got there. But actually, David Hopley showed that great generosity of spirit and trust. And he trusted me implicitly and made me feel completely welcome. And that meant that I could completely relax into the role of being OCC squadron. And because I was relaxing, rather than giving it the big I am to the, to, to the squadron, um, the squadron accepted me and I had one of the great two years of my, uh, of my career down there. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. And I put that absolutely down to David Hopley's leadership, the way he showed the way, uh, that sort of generosity of spirit. And I think that emphasis on people is something that, um, 
It's certainly a good corrective to me because actually I think the job of, a, of an officer is more about thinking than, you know, it's about ideas. And one can get too cerebral about all that. Like you can get too highfalutin and if you don't take people with you. Mm. So it was a really good corrective, uh, David Hockley emphasising the people aspect. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's three fascinating individuals. And going from three inspiring leaders and the different qualities, but sometimes similar things between them, when you've uh, been in a really good team that's coped well with a crisis, and most of your career is dealing with crises, so people now are dealing with their own business crises. People are listening to this, they're CEOs, they're people lower down in their, in their careers, but they've got a crisis on with COVID-19. When you've been part of a really good team that work together, um, what was it? that made that team work well together? And then maybe you can talk about when you've been part of a toxic team, which hopefully was turned around, a toxic turnaround. Perhaps you could talk about firstly, when you've been part of a really good, good, good team. team. Um, well, when I've, <laughs> there's a sort of a contradiction really. If I go back to the most formative experience of my life, which was the Battle of Longden, um, you know, just been in the army a year and suddenly found myself on an independent platoon operation at the top of the hill while the rest of the company went around the side and the rest of the battalion were doing other things. Um, I learned from that that in the end, although in peacetime, you know, the, the, the corporals and the NCOs, they, they all want to, they want to have their word and they want to have their say. The reality is when the bullets start flying, the shit hits the fan, suddenly they're all looking to you for guidance. So you've really got to, you know, you've got to have your shit together and you've got to have your own ideas. You've got to work out what you're going to do because the buck stops with you. Um, and also, um, you realize that you've got to, it's, it's about doing the right thing. You know, I think it was Schwarzkopf who said that an officer is an officer that is, is someone who does the right thing in the absence of any other orders. Mm. And I think that's really important, that whole morality question, who you are as a human being. That came out very strongly on London. You have to suddenly impose standards on things, otherwise the whole thing goes to complete chaos in all kinds of ways uh, that you don't want to see. Mm. And that tells me that being a, you know, that London told me that, being an officer wasn't about being a sort of super Tom or being better as a soldier. It was about adding something different. And that something different was about thinking, you know, that sort of vision, that sort of adding a bit of intellectual content to, to, to what could otherwise be an unseemly mess. So I've always thought that being an officer is more about thinking than doing. Take that forward. The question is, is that my thinking or is that the team's thinking? And the crucial thing I think is to take the team with you. And, when things had gone right for me uh, in my career, it was because I took the team, because it was a team effort, you got the team, and it very much lived by the mentality, the sort of the slight aphorism I have, which is that uh, ideas have value, not rank. Ah, I like that one. And that's a, a sort of little catchphrase I try and apply, which is, um, in, a one, in one sense it's sort of obvious, but on the other it's actually deeply challenging to do because Everyone has to be, you know, giving people the freedom to say what they think regardless of their rank. As I used to say to them, I said, listen, feel free to come up with an idea, but I'm going to feel free to shred that idea if it's a bad one. Mm. And you've got to recognize that I'm actually attacking the idea, not you. Yes. And there's a really subtle distinction there between identifying the person or separating the person from the idea they're espousing because 
just because you criticize the idea doesn't mean you're criticizing the person. Yep. And that comes back to the whole trust question. Yep. And that relationship between trust and having that freedom of discussion is absolutely key. Because when things have gone right for me, as with Ian Thomas, when he was my chief of staff out in M&D Southeast in, in Shawforce, that whole team that we built there, that was built absolutely on that basis. Uh, as a CO, you know, we had a great team in headquarters DSF, in the headquarters there. It was a free, a free fire zone for ideas. Mm. Um, and that, that's when the strongest teams come out because you take those ideas uh, and you analyze them, you shred them, and you, and, and you come up with the best idea that ever. It doesn't matter who it came from. And yeah. quite often the best ideas come from the most unlikely sources because they've seen things you haven't seen. Yeah. That's key. Brilliant. For that to work, people have to trust you. Mm. Comes back to that David Hopley point is about trust. Where things have gone wrong with me um, was because one didn't have that trust. And it's a neurological truth that, that when an idea hits the brain the first thing it goes through is not an, an analysis of whether you think it's a good or a bad idea but it's a question of do i like this person or don't i it's a thumbs up or thumbs down business and if you're in a relationship with someone where their instinct is to give you the thumbs down they're not really going to listen to your arguments mm. they're going to treat everything with skepticism and unfortunately, although I had a great time as DSF and doubled the size of the organization, the fact was that uh, because that actually my time as DSF pretty much carried on with Hereford as it had done when I'd been a troop commander there. And, you know, Hereford B Squadron, particularly in the, 19, in the 1980s, was quite a tricky place. They'd been kissed by fame, unfortunately, after the embassy. And fame is a real poison. Um, and you know they really weren't interested in in, in Rupert's. <laughs> they really weren't interested in me. Um, and and when I went back as DSF, unfortunately, I couldn't put that behind me, and I had some scores to settle, which was really a very stupid way to do it. And it's a real mistake if I can you know, implore to everybody. You know, don't take these people on. I should have just shelved that out and found another way of doing it. Because what I found myself doing there. Uh, was imposing ideas as opposed to uh, getting the team to come up with the ideas. You know, as I said earlier, you know, if, you, if you're faced with a problem, don't go away and think about the answer and impose a solution. Actually give the team, because it's quite, quite often the team will reject the idea. But the thing to do is then throw the problem to the team. Yeah. And they will then come up with the idea. And if it's the right idea, then it becomes their idea. And if it's their idea, then it's probably going to work. There was a, one of my favorite definitions of leadership is that leadership is making people do what you want them to do because they want to do it. And it's yeah. that emphasis of them wanting to do it. It's how do you get people to want to do what you want to do? Well, you yeah. don't do that by imposing your idea. And in my career, when I found myself trying to impose ideas, it didn't work. Yeah. When I got people to think it through and talk it through as a team effort, then um, it worked much, much better. And you, you got that excellent team spirit, excellent results. And they carried it, and the team then carried that, that plan through because it was theirs. Yeah. No, well, thank you for that openness about what did work and what didn't. And when you realized what you could do would make a difference. And when people took on ideas that they felt they'd, they'd developed and shaped, 
Um, that's really very interesting. And what about in these challenging times you've been in, in a whole variety of different places, what about military humor or even humor? What, what has been some of the funny moments? Uh, James Bashel was sharing, uh, he was heading out for a cigarette uh, when he was in Iraq and his, one of his sergeants said, it's not good for your health, sir. I wouldn't go out and have that cigarette. And he was talking to her and just before he was about to go out, there's a massive explosion outside from some, some uh, device that had just been lobbed into the, into the base. And had he gone out for his cigarette, he probably would have been covered in shrapnel. So he said, I think that probably wasn't a good healthy move to go out for a cigarette. <laughs> uh, what, what about you? What would be... Yeah, uh, well, that, that, there are so many stupid instances, aren't there? I mean, life is full of humor. I remember the, the, trudging across the Falklands. I think we really got there because of cracking Monty Python jokes at each other. And, you know... I always remember that we were living in our trench. When you dug a trench in the Falklands, you put your spit in and about six inches down, it filled up with water. So you're just building a sort of ditch to live in. So we were all covered in shit from the start. And suddenly out at the shimmering across the distance came a, a lifeguards officer, um, you know, and, and my signaler said to me, how do you know it's lifeguards officer? I said, because he's not covered in shit. <laughs> <laughs> Very fine. From, uh, from uh, the Holy Grail. Holy Grail, yeah. And he's a king that he's not covered in shit. Well, yeah, honestly, old Lord, Lord Flip-Flop, as we used to call him, came wanting his absolutely immaculate, even down to his Wellington boots. And we were just covered in shit. But that's yeah. the way it goes. That's, you know, that was uh, the infantryman's lot. Yes, indeed it was. Indeed it was. <laughs> Okay, um, that's great. And then perhaps we could go on to, um, uh, I, I think it's interesting, your, your book about Whitehall, and also you were talking about some of the interesting uh, issues uh, around decisions that have been made and, you know, good leadership, bad leadership, some experiences you've had, maybe Afghanistan, Iraq, things like that. But what, what about your book? What what um, encouraged you to write your book and tell people what your book is? Perhaps you have a copy there. Would you hold hey. it up? Let people see. Oh, here's the book. It's called Britain in a Perilous World, The Strategic Defence and Security Review We Need. Why did I write this book? Um, basically because having spent a lot of my career in Whitehall and operating at the strategic level of SF, that uh, actually it's... In I wrote the book in recognition that Whitehall doesn't actually do strategy. UK Limited does not do strategy. Don't take my word for it. Take uh, Bernard Jenkins and his Public Administration Select Committee's report of 2010, who asked the question, who's your grand strategy for the UK? And the answer came back, nobody. Mm. And what was particularly dispiriting about that was that Peter Ricketts, the then head civil servant, uh, said, I'm going to ignore this report because I'm completely happy the way things work in Whitehall right now. If I want strategy, I should go and ask the strategy directors in the MOD and the Foreign Office, both of whom had in the interviews with Bernard Jenkins admitted they didn't do strategy, the sort of thing we're talking about. So what you end up with is the military going on courses and learning all about how, you know, all, all about theory, about strategy, operational and tactical level. And then you have a government that has not educated in that style, doesn't understand that at all, and doesn't do it. And when they are faced with someone like David Richards, who during the uh, build-up to the Libyan crisis, started to ask the question of what the strategy was, gets rejected as being not part of the team and not being sufficiently supportive of the Prime Minister and finds his credibility destroyed just a couple of months into his job. 
mm. which is a shame because the comments David Richards was making were absolutely right. Mm. You had a situation where, where of the four top priorities of the country, two of them being Al-Qaeda, anti-Al-Qaeda, and the other being a counter-nuclear proliferation, um, Libya was bang on side with us. And all David Richards was asking was, are we really sure we want to knock this guy over when he's actually supporting us on two of our four top objectives? Mm. Uh, good questions. Um, no, he wasn't playing the game. Whitehall doesn't understand strategy. Um, and I think we see, unfortunately, we've all become, I said at the start that I thought being an officer was more about thinking than doing. I think one of the problems we've faced as a military over the last, well, since 9-11, is we've been so busy doing uh, and reaping the financial advantages and the resources that have come from that, that we've sometimes forgotten the, uh, to ask the big question as to whether what we're doing is worth it. Mm. Um, and I'm afraid I'm one of those who believes that our Afghan operation is about 10, 15 years overdue withdrawal. Um, mm. You know, we simply haven't got a strategy for that. We're confusing military tactical successes with strategic political success. And I think that we have been uh, weak pursuing that, which is rather the frustration I wrote in my book. Um, and also, I mean, you, know, you might ask, what was the best thing I ever did in my career? It was uh, probably MND Southeast and getting us out of Basra um, without, without a shot being fired. Mm. Um, which saved a huge amount of lives, um, Iraqi as well as our own, and achieved the political objective of getting us out. And and yet for that, I, I don't think that Britain, I think Britain is still getting beaten about for, for having done that. And I think it's a great shame. I think it shows a real lack of uh, understanding about what we did. And I think we're in a bit of a mess intellectually on that. I don't think we've done sufficiently strong thinking about it all. Yeah. And what about the, the crisis that we've got at the moment and your experience of, you know, how you prepare for something like this, if you can, how you react to the impact of it and how you then prepare for the recovery to come out of it as a, as a nation and industry back up and working? What's, what's your own personal views? Well, having sat through the field protest uh, and foot and mouth, um, the field protest showed that the, the country, the greatest vulnerability the country faced was that uh, was just-in-time logistics. Yeah. Uh, the country went from running fully operational on the Sunday to about to kill people uh, through lack of fuel on the Thursday in hospitals. So the strikers called off the strike. Um, the government chose to view this as a as that their triumph, that Blair had beaten the strikers like Thatcher had beaten the miners, what they didn't do was learn the lesson that uh, you need a certain amount of resilience. Mm. So, you know, we failed to do it because the economic model of uh, just-in-time logistics won out, and it still has done, and, and uh, I don't think we've learned that lesson. Yeah. Um, foot and mouth, the interesting question, which we're seeing running again now, is the that the algorithms... Uh, pursued by the epidemiologists resulted in the killing fields of Cumbria and just the mass slaughter, which to those of us sat in Cobra uh, throughout that mount was just disastrous because uh, we were sacrificing for the, for the sake of restore, of saving a, a, an industry worth hundreds of millions. That was the sheep industry. We were sacrificing uh, the industry worth billions. That's tourism. Yeah. 
but that logic went out the window. And you can see the same debate taking place now in cabinet between the people who want to pursue a purely epidemiological uh, basis review and those who want to look at a slightly wider prism. Um, and you have to take a slightly wider prism because it's not just about epidemiology. You have to, you have to consider all the, all the factors. And so a wider view is necessary, uh, and which is why it's not as easy uh, as some people are saying, as we should just follow the science because there's so many different scientific calculations going on um, mm. that a wider vision is needed. How do you prepare for it? Uh, well, you need more resilience. Uh, I don't have an answer you know, in terms of economics. Um, it, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not close enough to the, to the debate. You'd have to talk to people in favor about that. Yeah, but it, it is, uh, I mean, I suppose an unheard of time for our nation. Um, and, and if you were uh, giving any advice to people lower down the, the chain, you know, when they're trying to deal with a crisis in their own business, what kind of simple principles do you find as someone who's thought about the strategy of facing a crisis, a problem? Um, what, what, what tips would you give people? <laughs> God, you don't ask easy questions on this one, do you? <laughs> I don't have easy answer on that. This is pretty unprecedented. I think, you know, obviously the furloughing has gone ahead. Uh, the, the, the challenge is going to be the transition from no business getting back into it again because, and I think the government are, are now aware of that. The headlines yesterday were talking about how you ease people out of that transition. Um, it's, I, I don't have easy answers on that. Don't expect me to have a no. simple answer on that. So, um, okay. I'm trying not to be more helpful. No, 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 that's all right. And then what about, um, down to sort of you being a leader at different levels with different teams and different peoples. Um, over all the, the time that you've had, the Parachute Regiment, Special Forces, uh, different leadership roles, what, what was your um, mantra, your sort of way of, of leading? Did you have a few principles that you always stuck by? I mean, clearly the, the moral component, very important to your sense of strategy and why we're doing the mission and what's it for your intent um you know what, yeah. what about those just share a bit on okay. that so if i was to get i mean if you're asking for terms of top tips what what were the things yeah. that yeah. work? top tips leadership to me one of the best definitions again from rupert smith his definition of leadership is all about exploiting strength and protecting weakness um and i think that's a very good definition of how you should look after your team to exploit people's strengths and protect people from their weaknesses. One of the great, the best things that was ever introduced in my time uh, in the military was the, the six month appraisal, mm. uh, which was just between you and them and wasn't official on the cards. And one of the amazing things and the consistent themes was how when you pointed out to somebody their faults and then showed that you accepted them for their faults and weren't gonna crucify them, how relieved they look, what a sort of a, a weight off their shoulders. They know how long I had to pretend that they were perfect. You, know, you accepted them from what they were, you saw what their strengths were, you understood them. Mm. And so that top tip, uh, know your team, I think is absolutely key. Mm. Of course, the most difficult person to lead is yourself. You know, knowing yourself, absolutely key. It's no, no surprise that Sun Tzu starts off with that, you know, mm. know yourself. 
and you'll never be defeated. Know what your strengths and weaknesses are and don't set yourself challenges that you're unsuited to achieve. Mm. Um, so yes, you start with yourself and you exploit your strengths and you protect yourself against weaknesses. Another great Rupert Smithism was uh, learn to work within the tolerances of your system. Mm. Understand your system, understand what it's capable of, understand what it's good at, understand what it's bad at. So that is an application of that exploiting strength, protecting weakness applied on a systematic basis. Mm. Recognizing that if you set your team a task that it's ill-suited to and it fails, that's your fault, not theirs. Because yeah. you should have known that. And I remember doing that particularly with, I've had a variety of commands. I remember in, in Tupara, I had, um, I had a company of Gurkhas attached because in those days we were so undermanned. And everyone told me how brilliant the Gurkhas were. And they are, they're very good at certain things, but they're not the same as a company of paratroopers. And I remember doing an exercise early on and going to uh, a, a town in a, a, a Fibula village in Brecon and splitting the village in half. And I had Jim Bashel's company on one side and I had the Gurkha company on the other. And a gunshot rang out and instantly the two, the two para company did what you'd expect them to do and did the normal, because they were trained in that. And the Gurkhas just drew cookeries and wasted, wasted the village because that's <laughs> what they do. And I realized very quickly that they were quite different people and you need to treat them differently. You need to set them separate tasks. And so when it came to uh, doing the Tezex later on, uh, I gave the Gurkhas the task of digging in and holding that ground. And I gave the two para companies the more sort of maneuverist, clever, initiative, heavy sort of task because that suited who they were. And that idea of learning to work with different soldiers with different strengths is, is I think, absolutely key. I remember having the, one of my, yeah, my favourite line infantry unit of the Staffords who I've had under command both in, uh, in 12 Brigade, but then also out in, in Basra. And they are, could not be more different to a parachute battalion. But by God, they are good at what they do. You know, knowing them and knowing their, their solidity, their resilience, their just dogged determination to stick with it. Um, absolutely gold dust in places like the old police station where they're getting the shit kicked out of them or, or indeed in Kosovo in minus four just sitting in OPs and freezing their nuts off but doing the job. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. And that idea of learning to work within the tolerance of the system, absolutely key. Knowing your team, tasking them accordingly, brilliant. Great. And, and really, I think my last couple of questions, um, from low to high, ending on a high note, but uh, I think on the low side, it's always very interesting hearing from leaders some of the darkest times of their life, personally or whatever. So where something happened which was really tough and what you learned from it. Uh, and then really some of your proudest moments in your life uh, and in your career thus far. What, what would you share on both those? Firstly, the darkest moment. Yeah, I mean, the darkest, the darkest moment was... a. Was, uh, yeah, it goes back to Basra, I'm afraid, which uh, having been the best thing I ever did actually has, has left a, a lasting scar in the fact that I don't think it was appreciated. I don't think it, uh, I don't think UK Limited has learned the lessons. And I think we've, I think we've, conf yeah, just failed to recognise what should have been happening there. And I felt personally a bit betrayed by all that. 
Um, and it's a form of PTSD that I think is a particular officer form in that you do a lot of effort, something you think it worked well, and then you, you come back home and you find that people can give a damn about it. Um, I remember being in, going to the MOD when I uh, went there for one of my last jobs and um, and the guy in charge of the programme, a naval officer, said, oh, we don't want to argue for too much for MOD putting any resources into, uh, into Afghanistan. We've got to keep the Treasury paying. And you could tell them playing games in a way that was straight away costing lives. Hmm. Uh, and every week or so, as Colonel Common to the parish regiment, I'd be going down to Bryce Norton and, and seeing the bodies coming home. And just this disconnect between the, uh, the reality of the soldiering that we were going through and the, um, yeah, the games that, or the disinterest that was being shown by people in uniform back yeah. in the MOD, I found really disillusioning. Yeah. Um, and I'm afraid it, it, it's left a lasting sense of distaste to me. I'm still not completely over it, I have to admit. Yeah. Yeah, really. That's a tough one. And if you're asking about the good, the good times. What about the good times? Um, yeah, the good times. I mean, the good times. Getting to Stanley was extraordinary with the with the boys, and just that sense of uh, of pride and recognition of what the team had done and what the guys were capable of. Uh, you know, what the human the human spirit is capable of achieving is quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, being in Bosnia with Sea Squadron, uh, my SBS squadron, was an absolutely fantastic time. Just great achievement working with the Americans and having a wonderful time. And then the team out in Basra, you know, how we pull out of people in, we, we pulled every unit out of uh, every town. And when finally uh, the rifles came out of Basra Palace, again, all without a shot being fired, that was... Yeah, that was a proud moment because the plan had worked. It had taken a long time to, to come up with. Um, and that was a huge, a huge proud moment, which does link, of course, to the disillusion that followed. But it was an immensely proud moment. So great highlights, great, great times. Um, the whole time of being CO2 power, what a glorious job. You know, being CEO, there's nothing like it. Um, mm -hmm. Encapsulates the full humanity of the thing and the and the intellectual challenge with the emotional challenge, and the whole thing was just brilliant. What a yeah. team, great yeah, people. Lucky. And and let's let's end with just perhaps talking a bit about the the chairman role you're doing now in counter uh, improvised explosive devices um, and the difference that that's making uh, in the work that you're doing. And then we'll we'll bring this to a close and we'll have a bit of a chat after we uh, come off air. But um, Tell, tell me a bit about uh, about that, Jonathan, and um, what what that's doing and the good it's doing. Yeah, well, the the interesting thing about this company is it was formed by our all engineer officer Keith Hammond, who left the military and straight away recruited a gang of uh, engineers who'd also been chucked out of the army, uh, and they went straight back in and uh, started training the British Army on the latest technology out in Afghanistan um, on counter ID. And he'd spotted that uh, the, get, the game was moving on from mass mine clearance to this improvised explosive device. So there was a sort of top end of the market that needed working. And that's where the company has really been focused ever since, which is our sort of differentiator to, uh, to Halo and, uh, uh, and MAG, the sort of more established general mine clearing uh, companies. Um, and we've now expanded that to rule of law uh, and, and also uh, underwater 
um, counter ID. So cutting edge stuff. Um, and the job as, as chairman is really to, to massage the, the human or keep the human side in balance with the, the commercial side and, and just check the team, the team's running properly. Um, and I try and run it on the same basis as, uh, as in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, it's quite tricky. Um, civilian people trying to merge those cultures and keep them, uh, in, in tandem. Um, they're constantly complaining that we military don't understand the commercial world and vice versa. We <laughs> say the commercials don't understand humanity. So it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating struggle. Um, and, and it's very productive. Yeah. It's very productive that it's, uh, it's, it's keeps me constantly on my toes precisely because working in the commercial world is a very different world to working in the uh, in the military world we think we know about money we don't in the military we can just about manage a budget but managing a budget is not the same as actually having to make money yeah. um quite a different thing uh and it's good at my age still to be learning that's a great yeah. thing it's a great yeah. thing still to be learning new challenges uh, and moving on yeah as someone says the incomplete leader leading the complete team we're always work in progress never stop learning we're always work in progress exactly always, always well general jonathan short thank you very much indeed a fascinating uh, series of stories experiences insights i've very much enjoyed i'm sure those listening will do so thank you very much for your time and um i really appreciate uh, all you've contributed thank you So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.